Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. From the turbulent 1960s until today, Hong Kong has been a city shaped by civil disobedience. The latest wave of protests in Hong Kong's long history of public dissent culminated in the Occupy Central movement of 2014 and led to a unique Hong Kong identity, one shaped neither by Britain nor China. Joining me to discuss Hong Kong's struggle to assert itself is Anthony Dapperin, a Hong Kong-based lawyer and writer, author of City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong, published by Penguin. Thank you for joining me, Anthony. Thanks for being here. Hong Kong has an approach to dissent rarely seen in contemporary China, and I know that there's a lot of special circumstances in place to, quotation fingers, allow that to happen. Mm. But can you explain that to me, and why is the protest culture there so strong? So Hong Kong was returned to Chinese sovereignty in 1997 under the formulation, and I'm sure many people have heard, of so-called one country, two systems. Mm. And what that meant was that even though Hong Kong was going to be under Chinese rule and part of China, it would continue to have a separate legal system, an entirely separate system of society, including the capitalist system, a common law legal system, and various other, as part of that package, rights and freedoms that the rest of China don't enjoy. Is that reluctantly on China's part, though? Because that doesn't sound like a sort of situation that they'd like to encourage or tolerate. I think China recognized that a huge part of the success of Hong Kong was this heritage of an open and transparent legal system, the rights and freedoms that Hong Kong had enjoyed, and in particular, and thinking back to the state of China in the 1980s when this was being negotiated, the capitalist system compared Mm. to China, which was still operating very much a a planned economy at the time. And it was very much in China's interests for Hong Kong to continue to be successful. So it was guaranteed in the the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which was the treaty between Britain and China that led to the return of Hong Kong, that there would be certain rights and freedoms guaranteed to people in Hong Kong after the handover under the one country, two systems. And these were things that Hong Kong would continue to enjoy that the rest of China uh, may not enjoy in the same measure. And they were things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and importantly, freedom of assembly and, and, and right to protest. Yeah. And so that's sort of how it happens that Hong Kong has a very different culture to the rest of China when it comes to political protest. It's one thing to have that right and to be able to exercise that right, mm. but to embrace it as much as they have. Yes. So there's a number of of reasons behind that. It boils down to kind of three really key things. The first thing is that the political structure of Hong Kong is such that there are very limited channels for political expression. And this was partly by design. When Beijing was trying to set out the governance structure of Hong Kong as it would be after the handover, they did three key things. First of all, they put most of the power in the hands of the chief executive. A huge amount of political power is in his, or at the moment her, in the the case of the present chief executive's hands. They appoint all of the uh, ministers and sort of heads of the various government departments, formulates all the government policy, presents draft legislation to the legislature, formulates the budget, and makes all kinds of key appointments really across all of Hong Kong society. So not just government appointments, but also the governing bodies of all the public universities, the governing bodies of the Securities and Futures Commission, the, the mm. financial regulator, the Independent Commission Against Corruption, and so on and so forth, all the way down to sort of arts bodies and those sorts of things. So 
basically all the power is in the hands of the chief executive. And I can see why that would be a concern uh, just for the general population. You've got yeah. somebody put in place by Beijing mm. with a real top-down approach there. Yeah, so exactly. suddenly you've, you've lost control of Hong Kong. You'd see it that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's sort of the second key thing was how do we appoint the chief executive? And that's done by a small circle selection committee of 1,200 people from Hong Kong community, but they tend to be very much from the pro-Beijing business constituencies. They've locked up that process to ensure that only a Beijing-friendly person gets that position. And then the last thing they did was they basically rigged the legislature. The Legislative Council approves and passes the laws, but the way that that legislature is elected is similarly rigged so that even though the pro-democracy people win a majority of the votes, they always end up with a minority of the seats, Mm. just the way that the system's been set up. And also, the legislature can only either approve or disapprove proposals put forward to them by the chief executive and his or her government. They can't formulate their own independent policy. So it means that even though you've got a semi-elected legislature there, they don't really function as a governing body um, of the community. Through those three steps, Beijing effectively has sealed up channels for political expression in Hong Kong. You know, I would argue is that it means that political protest is one of the ways that people can actually get out and express their views and try and affect political change. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of the first reason. The second of the three reasons why political protest culture is so strong in Hong Kong is that it's actually worked on quite a few occasions. So given this system where, you know, protest is the only effective way to express themselves, people have got out and done that um, and had a couple of pretty big victories in the past. The most notable one in 2003 when the government was planning to introduce a pretty broad and draconian anti-sedition national security style law. Half a million people came out onto the streets and the law was withdrawn and and has never been introduced since then. Mm. The following year, 2004, again, there were very big protests against the then chief executive, Dong Chihua, and he resigned as a result. In 2012, protests against the government plans to introduce a national education curriculum, you know, a broadly based kind of patriotic education system were protested by, in particular, a group of students called Scholarism, led by Joshua Wong, who has since emerged as a, as a very key figure among sort of Hong Kong protest leaders and activists. And again, the, the proposal was withdrawn ultimately. Yeah. So not only is it the only effective means available, it actually has worked. And so it has encouraged, I think, Hong Kong to see this as a way that if we want to get our voices heard and we want to try and affect change, getting out on the streets and protesting is, is an effective way to do that. So the third reason I think that political protest is such an important part of Hong Kong culture, it goes back to what we were discussing earlier, which is the nature of the rights and freedoms that allow political protest to take place in Hong Kong and how they distinguish Hong Kong from the rest of China. There's been an ongoing anxiety in Hong Kong about what Hong Kong's identity is and what does it mean to be a Hong Konger vis-a-vis the rest of China. After 1997, Hong Kong's been returned to China, so we're part of China, but we're also one country, two system. We're our own place. And how do we distinguish ourselves and and have a a Hong Kong identity that's unique and that that marks us as Hong Kong from the rest of China? Mm. Now, previously, that was fairly easily done on the basis of simple materialistic differences that, you know, Hong Kong was rich and mainland China was poor. That doesn't hold up so much anymore. And in fact, the Hong Kong economy now, to a great extent, relies upon mainland China, mainland Chinese tourists, mainland Chinese businesses, investors, and those sorts of things. So Hong Kong can no longer distinguish itself on those sort of material terms. Mm. So the thing that I think has become, you know, the key way to 
say what makes Hong Kong Hong Kong is all these rights and freedoms. Hong Kong therefore becomes a place where what we call Hong Kong core values is what makes it different from the mainland. And that's things like transparency, a lack of corruption, an open fair judicial system, rule of law, and all these rights of freedoms like you know free press and freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and all those things. And by going out and doing this, this really expresses and exercises these values and sort of shows that we are Hong Kongers. There's two situations that kind of come to mind as to how these are being eroded though. And mm. I, I kind of want to gauge from you how worried Hong Kong is about this. Um, yeah. One is the arrest mm-hmm. of booksellers, yep. Uh, yep. which happened Earlier this year, maybe maybe late last year, Uh, actually. Yeah, yeah. 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 A bunch of booksellers were arrested for Mm. selling dissident materials. The other situation is if you're arrested, you are not sure of what charges you are going to face in Hong Kong. Mm. Mm. So that must make a lot of people pause before they go out onto the streets just in case they don't know what's going to happen to them. Can you explain those situations better than I have? Yeah, sure. And there's a a lot of really good points wrapped up in there um, and a lot about what's really happening in Hong Kong at the moment and, and concerning people. Certainly, um, mainland China understands that Hong Kong needs to continue to enjoy these rights and freedoms and and continue to be a place that's different from the rest of China under the one country, two systems formula. But also, Beijing is concerned to avoid Hong Kong being used as a base to undermine the rest of China. Mm. Uh, They don't want Hong Kong to be used as a base to subvert Communist Party power or to, to do anything to undermine the state of what they see as the security of, of, of the mainland. And so there's been a number of things happening over recent years, particularly after the um, Occupy Central umbrella movement protests in 2014, where we're seeing Beijing really tightening their grip on Hong Kong. What it really seems to boil down to is Xi Jinping, when he came to Hong Kong on the 1st of July for the 20th anniversary of the handover this year, made a speech where he said there's a red line that cannot be crossed. And that red line involves any activities that seek to subvert the mainland government or agitate for the self-determination or independence of Hong Kong. All these things are completely impermissible activities. Mm. And so Beijing has been clamping down and anything that it sees as use of Hong Kong as a base to undermine party rule. The example you mentioned, the bookseller abductions, uh, you know, Hong Kong has always been known for having a very vigorous free and open press. And that has included the great tradition of sort of tabloids and gossip mags and those kind of things. And also book publishers who publish books about mainland China, mainland Chinese government leaders and those sorts of things. And there was a, a bookseller publishing company based in Hong Kong that was well known for publishing salacious gossip type books about Chinese communist leaders and goings on inside the party, sometimes of of questionable accuracy, but really popular with the mainland tourists and mainland visitors to Hong Kong who obviously couldn't get this stuff on the mainland and and, and love to read it. And allegedly this company had started sort of selling and posting these books into mainland China. The Beijing authorities did not like the idea of this kind of activity being done in Hong Kong, in particular as it was directed at them and at a mainland audience. And so five of these booksellers were abducted essentially by mainland security agents, Mm. Uh, one from his vacation home in Thailand and the others uh, off the streets of, of Hong Kong. A very alarming situation because it was effectively mainland law enforcement authorities coming into Hong Kong, whisking people away, not under Hong Kong law, uh, but sort of extrajudicially taking them back to China and and ultimately not even putting them on trial under mainland law. Many of them have since returned to Hong Kong after a period of extended vacation in the mainland, um, but the the book company itself has has closed down its operations. So very alarming that this sort of thing is going on, seemingly in flagrant breach of the, the one country, two systems arrangement, which shouldn't allow that to happen. Yeah. The second point you raised about arrests and, and how people are treated under the Hong Kong legal system, 
Again, Beijing clearly wants to tighten control of Hong Kong, I think, especially after the Umbrella Movement protests, which were were so large, in particular involved very extensive involvement from the younger generation, so university students and even high school students. Uh, And we're pretty clear indication that at this stage, Beijing is a long way from winning the hearts and minds of the future leaders of Hong Kong. Sure, yeah. And also the aftermath of those protests, which were so badly handled by the Hong Kong government, uh, that they've effectively spawned a nascent self-determination or even independence movement in Hong Kong, something you never would have heard three or four years ago. Holding together the the territorial integrity of of the nation of China is extremely important to the Communist Party. And any idea of Hong Kong separating is is sort of unthinkable. And so that's another part of the, the red line that Xi Jinping referred to. And so Beijing wants to increase its control of Hong Kong to really make the cost of dissent intolerably high for, mm-hmm. for people. His recent visit, July, I think, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. He wanted to send a very specific message mm. with what he was saying with that visit, with how much security he had around, where yeah. he was speaking. Everything about that was very carefully planned. But I also see... His reluctance, the amount of time that it took for him to actually go to Hong Kong and yeah. make this speech and make this appearance, maybe sent another message that he wouldn't entirely want. Hmm. So is Beijing scared of Hong Kong at all? Certainly there was some questions around the time of the Umbrella Movement, Occupy Central protests, as to whether that would lead to sympathetic protest movements in the mainland. Ultimately, it, it didn't, partly because I think people in the mainland, and this is certainly what I understood speaking to to friends I have there, didn't have a lot of sympathy for the Hong Kongers protesting when they sort of said, look, you know, look at what you can get away with in Hong Kong that we couldn't possibly do in our wildest dreams in the mainland. That danger, I think, having been averted, I don't think the mainlander are necessarily afraid of Hong Kong. I do feel like they don't quite understand the situation in Hong Kong. The thing that really struck me from Xi Jinping's speech in July was that he expressed the view basically that, yes, Hong Kong's had a lot of social problems, a lot of divisions in society, but really it boils down to a problem of economics. And if Hong Kong uh, developed better economically and there were more economic opportunities, then all these problems would go away. I don't think it's that simple. Certainly there is a part of that that is, you know, young people being frustrated at limited opportunities and perhaps a, a fairly stagnant economy. But a huge part of it is cultural and is about values and people seeing their own values as not being consistent with the values that are being uh, you know, forced upon them by the government. So economic development is a part of the problem, but not the panacea that I think that the central leadership think that it is. Yeah. One of the things that, that Beijing have been doing as part of this tightening of control, which is really very clever, is using the Hong Kong system to their advantage. Uh, they've been engaging in what I call a, a campaign of lawfare, it's L-A-W-F-A-R-E, uh, using the Hong Kong legal system and rule of law to try and clamp down on the dissidents and the activists. So you've seen some examples of that in the recent appeals of the sentences of Joshua Wong and two other of the key protest leaders. They had been arrested as part of the Umbrella Movement protests, as, as many protest leaders were. A couple of years later, they were eventually charged with uh, various unlawful assembly charges, nonviolent crimes, just sort of basically political, you know, public order crimes. A magistrate sentenced them to community service, which they duly fulfilled those sentences and a fairly sensible outcome. Mm. The Hong Kong government, presumably directed by Beijing, decided that those sentences were not fair, went ahead and appealed the sentences. 
and had the sentences revised to prison terms for all of them. So the three of them have gone to jail for seven, eight, and nine months, respectively. What that achieves is a couple of things. Firstly, conveniently, anyone who is jailed for more than six months is not allowed to stand for public office for five years afterwards. Right. So they've effectively knocked those guys out of the political process for several years. Also, because of the legal expenses associated with them having to defend these claims and with the fact that some of them have been disqualified from office, they have a huge legal bills and other bills they have to repay, which will probably lead to personal bankruptcy for some of them. And being young people, there's always going to be concerns about what their future holds, having a criminal record and having implications for them finding jobs and developing careers and all those things. So really, the government, you know, totally legally through the court system, obviously very questionable judgment and questionable whether it's appropriate for someone who's effectively being charged with a nonviolent political crime to be jailed for it, doing it under the auspices of saying, hey, we're just trying to uphold Hong Kong's rule of law, yeah. really making the cost of dissent intolerably high, particularly for young people. Yeah, and make any future thoughts of dissent think more than twice, I'm sure. Exactly. Um, so, so what was your experience writing this book? You were right in the thing, not part of, I'm not accusing you of anything, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> but you were right there when these protests were going on, the umbrella movement and the Occupy yes. movement. You were there. So what was your experience writing this book? And why? Why did you write this book? Sure. Fortuitously, I happened to live just a couple of blocks away from where all the protests were taking place. So the protests were originally planned to be a, a, a protest taking place on the 1st of October, led by a, a, a legal academic called Benny Tai. In the lead up to that protest, some students led a student strike and, and had some protests outside government headquarters. And those protests sort of grew and grew and grew. Ultimately, on the 28th of September, back in 2014, the protesters flooded the streets and police used tear gas to try and repel them. And that's what really triggered off the whole umbrella movement protests. People were outraged to see the police um, using the tear gas on the protesters and came out in greater numbers. And that led to the, the, the 79 day occupation. Mm. So because I, I lived a few blocks away, looked out my window and saw oh, there's something going on down there. I'll go down and take a look and began to sort of observe the demonstrations. I was um, there in that afternoon when, when the tear gas was fired, was there basically every day after that speaking to people and also writing for uh, a number of media outlets. And so I became yeah, very interested in the movement and what it said both about Hong Kong and about China as a whole, having had a, a long history and interest in China. So the book really grew firstly out of that personal experience and some of the writing that I've been doing on the ground during the Umbrella Movement. But then the second motivation for the book was kind of an accident. I was looking through some old photographs of, of Hong Kong and came across a, a grainy black and white photograph from the 1960s of some protests and some riot police firing tear gas and riot police holding up a black banner that said warning tear smoke, which was the exact same black banner that I'd seen them holding up on the 20th of September in 2014. Not the first time that this has happened in Hong Kong. And what that photo was, in fact, was a photo of the 1967 leftist riots that happened in Hong Kong, mm. um, an incredibly significant moment in Hong Kong history, which has been forgotten to a great extent, even though this year is the 50th anniversary of those protests. It's gone largely unmarked. They were were protests by pro-Beijing activists who were you know, inspired by the Cultural Revolution and protesting against the British colonial rule and the lack of workers' rights and lack of social justice in Hong Kong back in the 1960s. And that led to riots, which police put down with tear gas and so on. But that sort of led me to start thinking about, well, what is this history of protest in Hong Kong? And looking back at the 1960s through till today, how has that developed? And I began to sort of learn more about it and began to see sort of these echoes of history. The Umbrella Movement wasn't just this sort of isolated thing that, that came out of nowhere and, and you know, drew the world's attention as it did, but had germinated in a, in a long history and a long culture of, of 
political protest in Hong Kong that had led to that point. And that's really where the book came from. Slightly ironic that that would have been a, a protest that Beijing would have been quite happy about. And, and yeah, a, a huge amount of irony. <laughs> no matter what side you're protesting against, you're still protesting against the government. So. I, exactly. And <laughs> yeah. what, what I, I find really interesting is that at the time, it was pro-Beijing protesters and the colonial government appeal to stability and prosperity as the two key things that we wanted in Hong Kong. And they used that to appeal to the community. Yeah. You know, almost 50 years later, the, sa- the exact opposite was happening. We had pro-democracy protesters and the pro-Beijing government appealing to stability and prosperity mm. to try and put down those protests. Yeah. Also, not, not unironic that some of the leaders of the 60s protests who had been jailed by the colonial authorities at the time were just as vociferous almost 50 years later advocating <laughs> the jailing of the pro-democracy protesters. So, yeah, no shortage of ironies. Yeah. So... How has the book affected you? And is this something that you can write freely about in Hong Kong? Is this going to make the shores in Hong Kong at all? Yes, no, it's been published in Hong Kong and, and is available in Hong Kong bookstores. I work as a lawyer, I work with the mainland and, and travel back and forth quite a lot. Am I worried about publishing a book like this? I'm not for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I don't think it's particularly controversial. I'm not doing anything crazy like advocating for Hong Kong independence or anything like that. Mm. I'm not taking a particular political stance, but just trying to report and analyze the history effectively. Secondly, it's it's in English and directed towards an international audience. It's not written in Chinese and directed towards a, a domestic Chinese audience. And I think that's obviously a much more sensitive area. But lastly, I honestly still believe in one country, two systems. And I believe that Beijing believes that you know we're entitled to write freely and speak freely and and talk about these things in Hong Kong. Hong Kong law protects us. Now, certainly there is an increasing degree of self-censorship going on in Hong Kong, and and obviously Beijing has only encouraged that. It's material that people consider is sensitive. It feels like every day in Hong Kong there's a new area that's considered sensitive that wasn't considered sensitive before. Certainly I've had situations where bookstores have been reluctant to stock the book or I was going to be extended an, an invitation to speak somewhere in Hong Kong, but then people realized what the book was about and the the invitation was rescinded and those kind of things. Not because anyone's going to get into trouble, not because anyone officially has issued any kind of instruction, but as people feel, oh, maybe in this environment, it's better that we don't do that. It's not necessarily what Beijing does, but just the implication of what they might do that really affects people's behavior. One final question, I think, to finish on uh, is uh, the expiration date for One Country, Two Systems is... uh put at 2047, so 50 years after the handover, Mm. at which case I think there's an assumption that Beijing's just going to come in and go, right, this has changed, this has changed, all this has changed, you can't have this, you have to do this. Mm. What's the level of apprehension? I mean, I know that there's 30 years, but at the same time, there's only 30 years until that happens. A great deal more apprehension now than there was even two or three years ago. It's interesting that that 50 years formulation was developed back in 1984 when they were first negotiating the handover. You can see what must have been going on in the minds of the, the British negotiators, which was, well, it's 1984 now, the handover is not for, for another you know, 13 years, we've got another 50 years after that. In 60 plus years time, China will surely be you know, a, a democratic open society and won't have anything to worry about. In fact, what's happened is the opposite. I mean, obviously, history can change very quickly and, and things that you don't expect to happen can happen very suddenly, but I don't see any immediate momentum for something like that to change in China. And so 2047 is a very much a, a clear and present concern for people in Hong Kong. It will be difficult just as a logistical matter for the mainland to come in and wholesale, say, okay, the entire Hong Kong system is swept away and now it's mainland law and, and all those things apply. So it's going to have to be, I think, as you put it quite well, little tweaks here and there 
starting to change things and there may be more or there may be fewer and they may be to a greater degree or less. It will depend, I think, on how important at that time Hong Kong is seen to mainland China as a whole, how much attention the international community is paying at the time, how much the international community's pressure means or doesn't mean to China at the time. I think China Mm -hmm. is increasingly in a very strong position vis-a-vis the rest of the world. By that point, Hong Kong is economically less significant to the mainland, which I'm sure it will be. Hopefully it it ends up progressing in a a positive way, but um, yeah, people are very apprehensive at the moment. And it's got to really bring a different thought behind the protests that are happening. I'm sure that protests are not going to go away for those 30 years. In fact, I can see it becoming more of a, a tool to try and push change. That's quite right. And I think the other key issue that we're facing is just the generational gap here. And it's very much the older generation that are are pro-Beijing and pro-government and the younger generation that have been really the core of this protest movement. So the Um, next city leaders. Exactly. Yeah. The next leaders of Hong Kong and that next leadership generation are going to be the ones that grew up on the streets of the Umbrella Movement. It's been such, I think, a formative experience of their youth. And this is obviously what's concerning Beijing, that if you lose the whole young generation, the hold on power is certainly going to be questionable in the future. All right. Thanks very much for your time today, Anthony. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Reviews are appreciated. Anthony Dapperin's book, City of Protest, is published by Penguin Specials and available now. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at ANTD. And you can follow us. We're at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.